global health expert Maeve Magner joins Tracelink's Roddy Martin on the Patient Driven Supply Network to discuss how large scale disruptions like COVID 19 can create complex challenges and opportunities for emerging markets across the world. Maeve, welcome. As uh, personally, as an old friend, a lot of respect for Maeve. Uh, I've worked with her on the Bill and Melinda Foundation. Uh, where she did a great job leading the the original strategy for the Visibility Analytics Network. Uh, Maeve comes from a consumer electronics background, but really understands healthcare and is engaged today uh, in emerging market strategies. So Maeve, let me hand over to you and let you introduce yourself and uh, your background in the industry. Hi, Roddy. It's great to talk again, and thank you for the opportunity to come on. Um, so for me, I've been working in supply chain and um, for over, I think, 35 years now. Um, a lot of it, as Roddy said, in, um, in the high-tech industry. Uh, but more recently, um, the last uh, 12 years or so in uh, global development, uh, so working on uh, medical supply chains in low- and middle-income countries, um, and currently, I'm supporting um, a global organization on the diagnostics for COVID. Um, so we're dealing with a lot of uh, supply chain challenges. And I think it's been very interesting, actually, to see how supply chain has come to the forefront um, of many people's minds over the last uh, five or six months as we've been seeing this pandemic spread. But again, thank you, Roddy, for the opportunity to talk to you today. Maeve, it's fantastic to talk to you because I think, you know, in this thought leadership series where we've spoken to Procter & Gamble, to Patheon, to leaders of consulting organizations, they've all tended to take a developed market perspective. And as we were talking just before we started, there's some real fundamental differences so, you know, as I was saying, Paul McKenzie, the CRO of CSL Bearing said, you know, in the pandemic, uh, <clears throat> CSL in particular has had to flex every one of its muscles. It's had to learn and continuously adapt in its sites around the world. Uh, technology is a, is a big piece, piece of the equation. What's different in emerging markets? What makes it so different? So first of all, I'll clarify, when uh, we talk about emerging markets, I think many people um, will look to India and China as emerging markets, even though we know that they're beyond that. Uh, but emerging markets for me is low income and low middle income countries. So we would be looking at like South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya. Uh, we would be looking at uh, the Pacific Islands, uh, also in Latin America. Uh, many of the countries there and in the Caribbean. Uh, so just for context. Um, however, we do still do a lot of work with India and, uh, and with China. What's different in the low and the low middle income countries is that, um, especially from a healthcare standpoint, the burden of disease is actually quite significant and the resources available for the medical supply chains is not um, as much as is needed given the burden. Additionally, a lot of the um, financial support comes from global donors, and that would be the likes of um, USAID, uh, UK Aid, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and, and others. So it becomes a very, very complex um, situation in terms of decision making, in terms of financing, in terms of um, uh, resources available. 
Um, in addition to that, uh, the capacity um, within uh, many of these countries um, for the usual supply chain actors, whether that is uh, transportation, warehousing, whether that's the capacity around strategic uh, procurement forecasting is not um, is not as um, uh, well as not as mature as what you would see in developed countries. Also, as well, we're seeing many regulations are constantly changing in that. So um, there's multiple differences in terms of the maturity of these markets and the complexity of the stakeholders. Um, but we're also seeing as well that given uh, the burdens of disease that we're seeing and the, uh, the lack of resources, we also see the adoption of technology and innovation is actually quite good and uh, happens uh, quite quickly. Um, so we do get to see um, uh, the adoption of technology uh, in the most unlikely places. So for instance, we see drones delivering blood in um, remote and rural uh, Rwanda, um, as well as kicking off a national uh, blood distribution system in Ghana as well. Um, we also see the adoption of uh, smart temperature monitors in Senegal and in uh, Uganda. Um, so yeah, so the, the, there are pros and cons, I guess, in comparisons to the developed markets. So, so Maeve, you made a really interesting point about, um, you know, what are, what are supply chain disruptions? And I think in the pandemic uh, scenario, you know, we've seen a lot of the developed markets, the first world markets have you know, had to flex all their muscles. And you made the point that just remember that in, you know, countries like like Africa, um, there aren't necessarily good infrastructures and a bad storm or a bad wind can take out infrastructure, which has a massive impact uh, on, the, on the supply chain. And that's not necessarily what we're having to deal with in developed markets. So, you know, how do you, how do you see that? What, what makes that different in terms of the way they lead it? Um, how important technology, uh, the role that technology plays to get visibility and communicate? What comments could you make in respect of that difference? Yeah, so there's a couple of different comments there. So one, um, you know, you're correct in many of these markets, the uh, access to uh, resources like water, utilities, to reliable, uh, reliable access to resources like water and electricity and so on and so forth is not a given. Uh, and so uh, then in addition to that, when we do have storms come in and knocking out um, some of that infrastructure and that it makes it actually quite challenging for countries. Um, however, um, the, I do believe in many of the developing countries, they're actually used to these kind of disruptions on a regular basis and actually have to adapt to that quite quickly. Um, now, when I look at... Um, some of the um, challenges that we've seen recently in terms of natural disasters. Um, take Mozambique, for instance, the last year, um, they had two uh, significant cyclones that have come through and they had um, a massive impact, um, not just in, in Mozambique, but right across the um, uh, several countries, including um, Zambia, Malawi, and, and some of South Africa as well. Um, 
And when we look at what the response would be like in uh, the U.S. Uh, for, you know, the storms that they've had, there's a lot more financial resources and then there is an awful lot more national and state level support that happens, similar in, you know, the Irish context, which is, is my background. However, in many of these countries, they don't have those additional resources to um, add both financial and um and expertise to uh, to address these so they have to be creative and then they also have to uh, think about how they can leverage um, uh, different um, I would say uh, donations or different uh, offers of help from both um, overseas governments as well as from technology um, partners and private sector and that. And we have seen a lot more meaningful um, support and donations that are actually happening. So rather than just writing a check or, you know, donating a couple of trucks, what we're actually seeing in the Mozambique situation last year was that there were massive uh, outbreaks of cholera. And it was really essential for them to uh, to get on top of that um, because that their health system was weak as it was. So they partnered with an organization called Zenesis and Zenesis helped them to pull together uh, different information sets that were sitting within different organizations, sitting within different systems, and were able to provide a clear picture, coherent picture um, around the uh, cholera um, outbreak and where the infections were happening. They were able to do some modeling and look at um, how best to address the outbreak, and in doing so, um, were able to go from a situation where there was 400 new cases of cholera happening every day and they were, sorry, happening and they were doubling every day to within three weeks, they were actually down to zero new infections. So what we are seeing is that these engagements um, uh, on with these uh, governments in low middle income countries is actually becoming um, a lot more sophisticated and they're looking to basically see how they they can um, leverage the offers of help or the uh, partnerships that are that are there to address the issues, the biggest issues first. You know, you lead into a, a great topic, right? For the last five years, there's been this wave of euphoria around control towers and visibility. And if I have visibility in my supply chain, I've solved all my problems. And I think what a lot of country companies are realizing. Uh, and countries is that, you know, visibility without context is not necessarily actionable. And, and you know, in my work with you on the Bill and Melinda F Gates Foundation, you know, I call you out in a very profound, uh, with the profound BMGF team that said, look, we're not calling this a control tower. You know, not many people, I think they know this intuitively, but they don't realize that Africa is not the United States, North America, right? It's, it's, uh, it's more than 50 countries, and some of those countries are at war with each other. They don't talk to each other. They don't share information with each other. And so when you come up with a concept like a control tower, the immediate response is, well, where are you putting this one control tower for Africa? Because not everybody's going to accept that. Uh, and, you know, the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation team under you came up with the idea that it's actually a visibility and analytics network, which I think is, you know, or a van, which I think is profound in many ways. And, and I think that brings about a, a difference in the way these um, issues are led. 
you know, in developed markets today with the pandemic, I mean, it's questionable about how good the leadership is. But in Africa, uh, just as an example of a, of a low-income market, uh, governments play a much bigger role in how drugs are distributed. Um, there's been the recent case in Zimbabwe where one of the ministers has been put in jail because of diverting PPE products uh, and, and reselling PPE products, not letting them go. How, how is Africa dealing with that? Is it just dealing with it through strong autocratic leadership? Are they being governed by the big uh, um, uh, NGOs? How, how is that playing out? I think in specific, uh, specific to COVID, I think Africa did a phenomenal job. And when I say Africa, I mean many of the, the majority of the countries in Africa did a phenomenal job in responding early. And I think a lot of that is because of the Ebola crisis and they're uh, having to deal with that several years ago. So um, what you saw happening was that a lot of the borders were shut down and especially uh, flights coming in from the UK and from uh, from other European countries and obviously from China as well too but uh, we started to see a lot of the major uh, shutdowns happening um, when it had spread to Europe and so um, I think that the governments there um, uh, were able to take the lessons learned from the Ebola crisis and the spread of the Ebola and uh, and do that. So first of all, it was about locking down the borders um, and really more about incoming flights. And then the second piece of it was around contact tracing. And again, because of Ebola, but also because of the major vaccination programs that they have, such as polio and that, uh, they were able to tap into those systems. Um, so they were uh, able to uh, respond quicker. However, um, a big part of um, the response really needs to be around the testing. I mean, many people talk about the vaccine, but quite frankly, I mean, the vaccine, we don't know if and when that's going to arrive, despite all of the money that's being spent on it. However, to me, what's a lot more important is actually access to the diagnostics, to the testing. And between contact tracing and testing, I think that that... Um, is um, really important to actually be able to um, uh, manage and address uh, the spread of COVID. Um, however, um, one of the disadvantages of these low and middle income countries is that they can't compete with the US going out and buying up all of the uh, therapeutics or the tests or the UK doing the same thing. And we've actually seen a lot of that where, um, you know, the big governments, the, the uh, developed country governments are actually going out and trying to corner the market, uh, the supply um, for these uh, for the for the test products and and are even quite frankly right now starting to do the same around the vaccine even though it's not available and so uh, there has been through some of the UN systems uh, structures uh, put in place to actually ensure that the low middle income countries will get access uh, to these uh, tests which is critically important um, because um, you know as long as it is um, within, uh, you know, across the globe, uh, anywhere across the globe, you know, we, we're all at risk. And so I do think that I give credit uh, to the, uh, the African countries and the African leaders. And I do think that part of the African Union 
uh, which seems to be getting a lot stronger over the last couple of years. And when I say a lot stronger, a lot of the leaders are actually really kind of coming together and, and thinking about how um, Africa as a continent can actually uh, do better intertrade, can actually do better in terms of uh, managing or addressing some of these uh, pandemics or some of these conflicts themselves. Um, so I think we are seeing a rise in that. Um, but I want to go back on something as well, too, because, you know, when we talk about supply chain, I think a lot of people talk about products. And what we have um, seen that is actually extremely important in low and middle income countries is when you talk about supply chain, you talk about it in terms of product movement, you talk about it in terms of information movement, and you also talk about it in terms of the financial flows. Um, because many times we'll see that we have challenges around the supply chains, not because we don't know um, how much we need or where it needs to be or when it needs to be there, but we actually don't have, the money is not available to actually um, pay for the products, either to buy them in the first place or to actually transport them um, or store them. Um, so other times we see where we have the money and um, we have the products, but we just don't know what's needed, where and when. And so it is important to be getting back that information around consumption, um, but also as well to understand any of the uh, scaling up of the campaigns. And, and when we look at our current uh, COVID situation, this is extremely important. And again, from a testing standpoint, it's a big challenge because um, we have our current PCR test, which will uh, help you to know whether or not you have uh, COVID, but we also are moving towards the antibody testing, which will actually help us to understand whether or not we've uh, had COVID or who has had COVID, but also help us to get better idea around the, um, the immunity as well. And it's extremely challenging to actually understand um, what the needs are as the testing strategies are changing constantly. And then ensuring with the limited supply that it is getting to where we need it to be and to ensure that, you know, all governments are playing fair and not stockpiling um, and leaving others in jeopardy. So that's another difference, I would say, as well, in terms of how we think about supply chains when addressing uh, low and middle income countries. You know, that's a fantastic perspective. And, you know, I... Uh... I used the expression in one of my blogs that testing is the new Manhattan Project, the global Manhattan Project, because quite honestly, exactly to the point you make, I mean, you know, we don't even know if we're going to get vaccines that work. We don't know if vaccines are going to be uh, available and what scale they're going to be available. There's already talk about, you know, vials and containers for vaccines are in short supply. So, so I mean, we've got some real basic issues that we're dealing with. What I found interesting, um, and I think it, it would be interesting to hear a perspective from you, and that is after AIDS uh, and, you know, the discussion about AIDS in Africa is legendary, after Ebola and now with coronavirus, you know, is, is there awareness and their governance around testing perhaps much better than what we're seeing in the rest of the world? Because we're almost... I'm almost seeing a flaunting of testing, right? Why do I need to be tested? It's my, you know, whatever right to, to be free and do what I want to do and et cetera. Is there a different governance structure around testing? I mean, 
you made this you made the point at tracing's conference that the patient is you right we are the patients we can't look to somebody else to look after us and if ever that's more true it's it's literally in the low income markets where it does start with a patient they have to think patient back because the patient may be in a clinic up in the mountains that takes half a day to get to in a vehicle Whereas in the United States, you know, we think about patient, we say, oh, it's about, you know, privacy of patient data. So is that patient-centric thinking more, more, you know, embedded into the way that low-income markets think? Because they have to think around and plan around the patient. Uh, I, that's a great question. I, I guess my initial reaction is that um, it hasn't been as much patient-centric as it as it really should be um, in the last, but however, in the last few years, we are starting to see that change a lot. Um, and the reason that we're seeing that change is because um, sometimes we are missing people. And, um, you know, if we look at adherence around HIV, it's really important if you're starting um, on ARVs that you, would, you have um, a strong adherence in taking those medicines. And it's something you have to take every day, every day for the rest of your life. And we also see as well um, that there's, um, uh, it's important around malaria that you're taking the necessary precautions as well, especially with um, stuff like bed nets and uh, the use of bed nets and so on and so forth. Um, And we also see um, that uh, in other areas in reproductive health as well too, um, that uh, ensuring the availability of uh, a variety of different contraceptives is important, but then it really is up to the uh, woman herself to make that decision on which type of contraception she wants to uh, use versus what um, you know a government or a donor agency may feel that she should. So in the last few years, what we're starting to see is that we're solving for the problem of the supply of medicines, but now what we need to be solving for is ensuring that the choice is there and that the patient is actually being brought into the center of this so that we're making sure that the products are available when and where the patients are and that we're not losing uh, patients or we're not losing uh, citizens um, because um, the products are not available where they are going to go. So an example of that would be where with malaria medicines, a lot of those had been available in public health centers. Um, and when you would go to the public health center, um, if they were stocked out or if it was really busy and you had to wait in line for four hours or five hours or, or a day in some instances, then you just wouldn't go. That's a disincentive to go. So then you would go to your local uh, informal pharmacist um, who might give you counterfeit medicines or give you poor quality medicines. So now we have to make sure that... Um, we understand the patient decisions or the the um, citizen decisions, the beneficiary decisions about where they'll go to access medicines or to access tests or to access contraception, and that we make sure that they're available. So we have to we have to take into consideration their behaviors. We have to take into consideration the decision processes, and we have to make sure that we're actually. Uh, building the supply chains around that versus just building the supply chain for products only. So we're, it's taking a while, but it certainly is a lot more um, 
it's a lot more of a focus. I would say, though, in this COVID situation that I don't feel we have the same focus on that. And I think a lot of that is because um, demand has been outstripping supply, especially on the uh, medicine, oh, sorry, on the um, diagnostic side of it. Um, and as you know, we don't have any specific medicine um, that has been proven yet uh, to, uh, to help. I mean, I know there's several out there. Um, but uh, the focus really has been on trying to get manufacturers to scale up their capacity and make sure that there's enough, you know, whether it is PPE, whether it is the diagnostics, whether it is the uh, ventilators um, and all the consumables that go with that to make sure that there is sufficient to meet all the needs around the globe, not just one or two. But the second part of that is that it's also important to ensure the quality of that product um, because there's many, many organizations that are jumping on the bandwagon and that are producing PPE and tests and different types of medicines, but they're actually not of good quality. And at the end of the day, it's a waste of uh, government resources, including our own Irish government. And, uh, uh, and also, um, it doesn't help uh, in addressing the uh, COVID response. So there's a big focus on quality as well. And the organization that I'm currently um, consulting with is actually doing some independent evaluation around the tests so that when people are um, going to buy the tests or when governments are going to buy the tests that they actually have some reference points in terms of the uh, quality of these products as well. If you're in a position to, when you've finished that study and if it's publicly available information, I'd actually love to do a uh, separate webinar on that with you because I think the subject of, of testing um, is, is quite honestly, uh, that's the part of the iceberg that's under the water. I don't think we've really realized the significance and the complexity of global testing you know, I remember right at the beginning of, of the COVID scenario, one of the big pharmaceutical companies was literally doing really rudimentary tests on people just walking in and out of their buildings on their site because somebody going from the, you know, one part of the campus to another part of the campus and going into a lab infected could shut the whole facility down. And so they'd realized in December, January already that, you know, testing was an absolute core capability of this whole uh, program. So Maeve, thank you very much. I mean, it's, you know, as an ex-South African and as somebody who ran a 3PL logistics company in Southern Africa, um, this is a fascinating story. I mean, I'm not sure that everybody understands and has a good grasp of the fundamental differences. And I think that's what you drew out, you know, where we, where we take certain things for granted and where we deal with um, natural disasters. And yes, you know, we have a flood, we deal with it and we move on. But in Africa, it wipes out infrastructure that sometimes takes five years to rebuild. And that wipes out some of the most absolute basic necessities like electricity and water, et cetera. So it's, it's, really, um, it, it's really fantastic to hear from you. Uh, I love talking to you just because I learn something and I get insights into something different every single time we interview you. Thank you for making the time. And as I say, when, you, when you've done some studies on, on testing, I'm sure they are... 
they're repeatable or they are learnable for other countries and, and other supply chain uh, executives to see. We'd love to hear your opinion. So thank you for making the time. And uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on these webinars and panels. Thank you, Maeve. Thank you, Roddy, and thank you for hosting these. They're also very informative for me, uh, so I, I greatly appreciate it, as I'm sure many of us do as well. Thank you.